It's a foggy morning as I walk into my high school. Not my high school, in the sense that I'm a student. I work here, though you wouldn't know it by looking at my face. When the new teachers were paraded in front of the staff, most talk about where they studied or what they taught. I opened with an apology for all the times that they would mistake me as a kid in the hall. For every question about missing work, there's three about my age. Inside, teens are corralled at the front of the building. Every inch of the walls are lined with students. Some huddle around trading card games, catch up with friends, or chat about the latest teacher to have crossed them. Occasionally, there is a smile from a familiar face. What? Oh, him? That's me talking to a student of mine who claims to have found my twin. She points to a tall, lanky student walking by. Like I said, severe baby face. As I head up to the second floor, I greet a colleague at a student desk. Papers piled high, entering the occasional grade between glances at kids to ensure no one takes a swing at each other. It didn't take me long to realize that every idle moment is an opportunity to grade, answer parent emails, or fill out the next line of paperwork that was due last week. That'll be me Wednesday morning at the auditorium, aka Makeout Point, juggling a large coffee, those endless emails, and stopping the occasional teen romance. Turns out, the nauseated face of an English teacher is pretty effective at ruining the mood. Up the stairs on the second floor is my classroom. Considering that I'm a new teacher, I've made some headway at making it my own. I've managed to replace the broken, dusty window dressings with curtains in our school colors. Behind my desk, large chalk letters say, Your Voice Matters, with note cards from students detailing how they felt about English at the beginning of the year. Bulletin boards are filled with your typical school information and decorated in gray and black. I know, it doesn't sound like the most thrilling color scheme, but it's overcompensating for something else. My pink accent wall. And it is quite the accent. I'm by no means a macho guy, but this isn't tasteful HGTV makeover pink. It looks like someone painted it with Pepto-Bismol. I guess if I ever get ill from looking at it, I can just lick the wall. Anyway, by this point in the year, these four walls and I have seen it all. From vomit on the floor and gum on the ceiling, to breakdowns, breakthroughs, and the greatest belly laughs you'll ever have. One student even vowed to dump a pile of fortune cookies on my desk, and did it. With every day being a surprise, I can only say two things remain constant, love and exhaustion. Technically, this year was a return to teaching for me, a detail that I'll explain later, and on some level I knew what I was getting myself into. After all, teaching is the only profession I've seen that actually charts a newcomer's attitude over the first year. It starts with anticipation, followed by the sharp dive known as survival into the pit of disillusionment. If you're a glutton for punishment, there's a modest reward about this time of year known as rejuvenation. Though, that's a label I have a problem with. It makes February sound like a spa treatment. Lastly, there is reflection before returning to anticipation in the summer. One look at that graph and you'll know teaching is not for everyone. Personally, I find the graph misleading maybe even deceptive. No matter where you see the graphic, I found one with a little roller coaster on it. The title remains the same, Phases of a First Year Teacher's Attitude Toward Teaching. 
but that last phase is the same as the first, which tells me that this isn't linear at all, but a cycle. That's good. As the first bell rings, students begin to stomp their way to the second floor. I join colleagues in the hall. Yeah, I think it's because I haven't eaten yet. Courtney, my next door neighbor and fellow first year. Not ready for the <laughs> Not ready for today, sorry. That's Megan, in case you couldn't hear. She's a second year. I promise she's more put together than Courtney and myself combined, but I couldn't help myself. We can all relate to that moment, though. But that's partly because we are all figuring these things out together. Looking up and down the hallway, I realize that the students aren't the only ones young and inexperienced. That cycle, that yearly experience, is the best explanation I have as to why there are so few veterans among us. Teaching today seems to be less of a career than it is a tour of duty. Put in a couple of years and then move on. After a lot of soul searching, I chose to make this my career. With a loving wife who is also a teacher, no kids and no major responsibilities, I've been able to make this lifestyle work. Those late night grading sessions and last minute changes are rough, yet doable. But at the age of 30, 40, with children? As I start to think about the long haul, I begin to realize that my greatest challenge won't be test scores or bad students, but finding a balance between the classroom and my life. In our circles, it's well known that most of us don't last beyond five years. Not because so many of us find ourselves in the wrong profession, rather it's something else. That's why I'm recording this. I want to know if in this age, when education is seen as a sinking ship to many, can I handle it? Can I find that balance without cheating my students out of a great education? Or will I have to give up what I love? I'm Neil Plemons, and this is Burnout, a young teacher's podcast about finding work-life balance in a profession that demands everything. At this point, you probably have one big nagging question in the back of your mind. If you are so overwhelmed by your job, then why are you making a podcast? To that, I have no easy answer for you. But if I had to try, I would say that at my core, I've always wanted to help people. So while this adventure may be for myself, I knew that it was important to share this with other silent sufferers out there, bearing the burden of our system's problems. I can't promise that I'll find the answers, but sometimes knowing that others like you are trying changes something. This won't be a Cinderella story. You will get to see my failures, my successes, my goals, and see me cross them out with a giant black X as I make new ones. And I can think of no better example of these things than the story of how I even got here. My time in college was split between literature and preparing for medical school. Growing up with two educators for parents, I've always had this desire to serve others. And like most millennials, I've had this cliche mindset that whatever I do with my life, it must be meaningful. At the time, I was certain that becoming a doctor was the best way to embrace both of those values. I worked hard, received my credits, and scheduled a meeting with a committee that would write a recommendation letter for my applications. Nervous, but confident that I could prove my worth as a well-rounded candidate, I stepped inside the lion's den. What I didn't know was that my transcript was a slab of juicy red meat. Why didn't you major in biology? I don't think anyone will understand your cover letter. I told you to minor in Latin. You only took one course over the required amount. Why didn't you take physical chemistry? I don't think these grades will be competitive enough. 
Uh, hello. It's not going to show me, is it? Just my voice. So, <laughs> no, it's it's just your voice. It's a, it's a it's an audio podcast. Oh, that's true. That's true. I'm going to be famous. <laughs> okay, my voice is. <laughs> that's my mother. Like the rest of my family, she still lives back in Oklahoma. So I was wanting to know from you, like, what what do you remember from that, like, that day or that week? Because I don't even know. Did I tell you the the day that it happened? That you chose not to do med school. That yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I I I don't know if I decided it that day. For me, in my mind, it was it was that day. But you. You had that bad experience sitting in front of that board and the questions they were asking. I, I don't remember if I, because I, after the interview, I got back to the parking garage and I just sat in my car for what probably was literally five minutes. They always say, you, you know, it feels longer than it actually is. I think I actually did sit there because it felt like an eternity. And I think it was about five minutes. I just stared straight out through my windshield <laughs> to, to the building across the street because I was just so... You know, and that's what you think that you want to do with your life for since high school, you know, and then to realize that I sat there for... I think you were disillusioned by it all. Yeah. That these were very learned, very what you considered important people, and then all of a sudden to find out that they valued very little what you did and that these were well-rounded good things to know regardless of what medical field you wanted to go into. Yeah. Did I... Do they seem, I don't know, defiant or, or, I don't know, confident at that moment? Because I'm trying to think, after having what you wanted to do for so long, just kind of shattered in that moment, especially since it was my senior year of college, I, I'm trying to picture, I don't remember how I was at that moment. Do you think I was scared? Like I, I don't know, because I, I would think, looking back on it, I think I should have been more scared. Well, I, most people would have been freaked out that now all this time and they thought they had it all figured out because you were wanting to be a doctor not since high school since grade school so i can see you i did, you didn't tell me this till just now but i can see you sitting in your car staring what seemed like an eternity going holy shit everything i thought i knew everything i had my whole road planned ahead of me and now it won't work for me uh crap but no, when you spoke to me, you had complete and utter confidence. I mean, absolute, like <laughs> these people are ignorant fools and you were a little bit defiant, not, not like ugly, mean defiant, but just what, what am I doing? And I'm not in the right direction and I can't do it. I was the one more probably cause you know, I too, at that point, was seeing you as this bright person and that this was maybe was the way for you to go. And that I was disappointed for about a week. And then I realized it was never a good fit for you. Did I say anything about what I wanted to do after that? Or did I just say, I don't know, I'm going to figure it out. Or I have a plan, even though I probably didn't have one. I feel like that's me. Like I'm always saying I've got a plan and I actually don't really have one, but I managed to convince myself otherwise. No, you didn't have a plan, and you didn't say what you were going to do, because I really don't think you had a freaking clue at that point, and you would have thought you would have had, you would have been a bit more lost, 
I think, too, it might have helped that I looked at you and said, whatever you do, you will have received the best education possible. You will have made the most of it. So I wasn't worried about you. So you shouldn't be worried about you. And you seem to be good with that. You weren't, you weren't worried. I mean, you still were going to graduate with a degree. Uh, you just weren't sure what you were going to do with it. But you had skills. You weren't worried about whether or not you were going to be able to be employed or not. So that was not a concern. Yeah, I, I, I guess I guess the reason why I was, I'm, I'm hesitant looking back on it now. And again, I don't know how much of this I knew then, or at least had the perspective. I don't think I know anything more than I did back then about that situation. But I think my perspective on it has changed a little bit because, you know, <laughs> like, especially with English degrees, that's the, the thing where it's like, oh, great. Well, you don't know what you want to do with your life. Well, I guess you're going to be working as a Starbucks barista. You know, it's, uh, you know, I've, it's, it's just that thing where if you don't have a direction or something where you've interned or something where you've had a lot of experience or you're doing side projects, English degrees in and of themselves don't really lead you anywhere. Like you can't just float downstream into something that's related in the field. Whereas if you have a business degree or an engineering degree, you know, no matter where you end up, you're going to be doing those things. But for the other one, it seems like, oh, well, if you don't have anything that you're swimming really hard to one side of the shore to the other, you're going to just end up in the pool of Starbucks baristas that know how to <laughs> compare literature. You know, it's. <laughs> I guess. Yes. OK, so most people would look at an English lit degree in cultural studies and go, what the hell are you going to do with that? That's not going to get you a job. No degree gets you a job. You get you a job. You had job skills. You have communication skills. I've never known you to speak to any potential employer and them not have their socks knocked off by you. And, and so my experience with you, the day you've ever had a job, you excelled and went, moved faster to the top than any one human being I've ever known. So when you tell me, okay, it's not what I want to do, and I'm going to graduate with this English Lit Cultural Study degree, and I don't now have a plan, I never worried, never even thought about it. Because I'm just like, I know that you have a great intellect and a great education, and you'll have a degree. Whatever you do decide to do, and take your time and figure it out, you will figure it out, and you will do well, you, I've, you've never failed. And if anything, not only just were successful, but excelled in any and everything you did. So I never, ever concerned myself. Nah, not you. Yeah. Yeah. For the record, I've failed at plenty of things. But when your mom stops being your biggest fan, that's when you should worry. Rose-colored glasses or not, the truth was the same. I didn't have a plan. My wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, supported me through it all, but I didn't know what my next move would be. I had worked part-time as a computer technician in retail, and while I mainly served as a human virus removal tool for customers with questionable browser histories, I loved it. There in front of me was something tangible, something I could point to as proof that I had made a difference in someone's life. What happened next is still something that I lie awake at night thinking about. My dad made a surprise appearance at my job and told me about a teaching opportunity. 
similar to his start in education. It called for an experienced technician who could train high schoolers for entry-level IT jobs. I wish I could say this was the moment that I discovered my calling, but it wasn't. In fact, I'm pretty sure I laughed when he pitched the idea. To this day, I don't know what motivated him to walk into the store at that moment. Maybe he was scared that I didn't have a plan anymore, and that I might fail. Or maybe he honestly thought that I would be a great teacher. I'm still too scared to ask, but I do know this. He gave me a purpose at a time when I needed one most. When I think of my first year in education, I picture one of those famous montage videos of failed airplane designs. The reason why I don't really count this year as my first year of teaching is because I was more of a tutor than a teacher. Everything was self-paced, students were motivated, and I could count the number of behavior problems for the entire year on one hand. I blew that number away this year on my first day alone. I felt satisfied by the job and more alive than ever. Sure, I was staying up until 1 a.m. nearly every night trying to overhaul the outdated curriculum, but seeing my students engaged and excited was the instant shot of gratification I needed to keep going. I was happy, but life was far from perfect. On the other side, my wife was in her first year of teaching too, based in a public elementary school. I plan to talk more on this later, but for those of you who don't know what education is like in Oklahoma, Let's just say that it isn't pretty. After the first month, I stopped keeping count of how many times I saw the love of my life come home in tears with every bit of joy sucked out of her. By year's end, we both had an inch for something more. I began to fall in love with the idea of jumping into the IT industry, while she needed a system that treated her as a professional she had trained to be. With more ambition than actual plans, we took a risk, packed up, left everything and everyone we knew behind, and headed for Austin, Texas. I landed a job at a small IT company, and she found a position in a neighboring school district. I had traded the classroom for a cubicle and a beer fridge, successfully living the young Austinite lifestyle. I enjoyed traveling the city, learning the culture, the people, and ultimately the joy of helping others. But something was missing. It was difficult to explain until I received an email almost a year later from a former student of mine that had landed an internship back in Oklahoma. As much as we try, I don't think any teacher can quite explain how it feels to hear from a student long after you've taught them and hear about their success. There I was, 23 years old, a guy, feeling the need to tell everyone, regardless of whether or not they actually cared, like an overzealous proud mama. I knew now what I wanted and I wouldn't be satisfied spending my days fixing someone's computer problems. A few stops later, we settled down in Colleen, Texas, a place that I'll describe as somewhere between being a town and a city, thriving in the shadow of one of the largest military bases in America. Down the highway, every other billboard panders to the military, and every few nights or so, the windows rattle from the boom of artillery. When my wife and I tell people that we moved here from Austin, we usually get a few raised eyebrows, and understandably so. With everyone being connected to the military in some way, Colleen usually isn't a place where people go. You end up here. In some ways, maybe a lot of ways, that's what makes Colleen so perfect. As a happy accident, the military has made Colleen one of the most diverse places in Texas. With this single source of employment, it creates a burgeoning middle class, 
In the time I've been here, I've only seen one neighborhood that I would consider rich, and even then, we aren't talking Trump Towers. That's not to say everyone is living well. The reality of a military town is far more brutal than that. Families rotate in and out, creating a revolving door in the classroom, and parents are deployed without notice. I once had a student who came in excited about a Christmas present they had gotten the first week of December. When I asked why she had received it so early, she told me that her family had to celebrate now before the sudden deployment of her father the following week. All of this is to say that I've found my place of need. No more searching for a meaningful career. After all, in an uncertain life, having a stable teacher that students can rely on each day is exactly what most of them need, and I'm happy to serve them. But when your ideal career has the same success rate as a typical marriage, I wasn't exactly taking a victory lap. When we returned from winter break, our school had a staff meeting to share some results earlier in the year. Along with those numbers was a breakdown of the teaching staff by experience. Most of us had less than five years. At the meeting, they discussed the biggest challenges were not only hiring the best, but keeping them. Each year, administrators look out across a group of new recruits, knowing that statistically speaking, half of the faces looking back won't return. Since they deal with my question on a much larger scale, I decided that they were the best place to start looking for answers. I reached out to a number of people, but no one felt they were able to speak on record, which is understandable. If there is one thing the media loves more than murder and high-speed car chases, it's jumping on any opportunity to vilify public schools. At this point, I was beginning to feel like my first episode was starting off on the wrong foot. Doomsday careers and powerful officials that choose to remain silent it was all getting a little too morbid and, quite frankly, the exact opposite of my intentions. I didn't want my story to be soaking with drama. I wanted something candid that showed the good, the bad, and hopefully a few solutions. After all, it's not like teachers were trudging down the halls in gray jumpsuits, passing 1984-esque posters with caps lock propaganda saying, stress is serenity. So what did other teachers think, and what are their solutions? I went around and asked a few of them two basic questions. What do you think the worst cause of burnout is? And how do you deal with it? I think the biggest stress that goes with teaching is that it's, it never ends. Is that there's always something that you can do. And you always have kids' problems on your mind, and there's always work to grade, and there's always work to plan. So it's as if there's no end to it. The key to dealing with it is to make sure that you take time to actually forget about it and recover, not just physically, but, but mentally from the job. I mean, I, most of mine comes from the overwhelming amount of like new strategies that we have. There's so many educational fads and we're asked to implement those in our classrooms. So it really just takes, I think, a lot of time and trial and error, find a happy medium. You're pulling what actually works, but you don't know what actually works. And then what's going to be supported by your school system or your individual school or your PLC. Just because it does work for me, doesn't mean it's going to, going to be encouraged. You have to ask yourself, is it worth it? In some interviews, the problem was slapping us in the face right as we talked about it. Um, okay, well, I know my biggest hardship is my introvertism. I'm an introvert. And so having to be on all day long and not having a place even, because even when I'm in my classroom, kids are in and out, 
teachers are in and out, and so that makes it really difficult. One of the biggest things that I've had to do is just try to force time into my own day because that gives me at least a minute to breathe. And then just working my classroom management around that. I don't do a lot of big groups because it's difficult for me to manage. On top of that, I think one of the other biggest challenges I've faced is just the constant new. There's always new added on to what we already do. And the question never comes that, you know, what are we fixing or what are we addressing in a new way we're adding on. And so it's, it's a lot of um, additional things outside of the classroom. So really, the teaching portion the of your job. The following students, please report to student activities. Thank you. That's a perfect, perfect example <laughs> of how you're never alone. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, it can be really overwhelming. You know, how am I going to? I need the following students in the guidance center, please. Please come to the guidance center. Are you going to want to re-record this or? No, that's fine. Keep going. It's okay. like, just, just cap it off. Just cap it off. <laughs> uh, so it can be really overwhelming because it's, it's always trying to keep up and move forward, but there's, there's never enough time in the day. <laughs>
this podcast wouldn't even be a reality. Coming up this season on Burnout. I mean, why not email them? Maybe they don't even know that they need to make a solution because they don't even know there's a problem. So, yeah, I'm going to email them. This can't be, this can't <laughs> no, be where I end up. No, being a teacher. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what it always seems to be. the sad thing about it is that we were telling you that because teaching, it doesn't hold the status that it did ages ago. Teaching doesn't pay well and how unfortunate is that that we're telling you for no other reason than that not to be a teacher not because you wouldn't be good at it not because our world doesn't need good teachers but because it does you can't earn a living and and have the things you want in the world and and that is a sad thing but it's also a true thing um it's 9 17 at night and I'm still here at the school. <laughs> what am I doing here?